Well, you all look fabulous today. Glad you're here today to worship the Lord. Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Andy just read, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue our series, Kingdom Come. We're working verse by verse through 2 Thessalonians, and I want to introduce <clears throat> the message today by sharing a quick story with you. Forgive the self-indulgence, but I like to play basketball, as you guys know, and if I can just disclose uh, something from this last week, I, I played really horribly last Tuesday, and it, it really set me up for a, a rough week. And that's unusual for me because um, Tuesday is usually my best day for basketball. They, I actually have a nickname with the guys I play with. I'm, I'm called Tuesday Tony because <laughs> that's my best day playing basketball. Thursday and Friday, I'm not very good. But Tuesday, Tuesday's my day. Well, this last Tuesday, I wasn't playing very well. I wasn't Tuesday Tony. I was terrible Tony. Couldn't put the ball in the basket. And I, I had a friend... We were on the same team together, and he came up to me, and he said, man, we're, we're really struggling today. He was struggling, I was struggling, and I was like, yeah, yeah, we, we just don't have it today. And then I said this to him. I said, yes, but thankfully, my identity is not found in basketball. And he looked back at me. You could see on his face, he was kind of like, okay, weirdo, you know, what, what does that mean? My... And I don't know if he grasped what I was saying. I, th I think he kind of did, but it was good for me to say that in that moment. My identity is not found in this game. And, you know, it's important for me to say that because when I was at 16, my identity was very much wrapped up in basketball and how well I did or how poorly I did. But my identity is not found in that now. And, you know, that same thing is true as, as a pastor. My identity is not found in being a pastor. I love being a pastor. I really do. I love serving the Lord and preaching on Sundays. But my identity is not found in this. My identity is not found in being a husband. I love being a husband. I love Sonia. I love being a father. I love being able to play basketball, 40 years old. But my identity is not found in any of those things. My identity is found in Christ Jesus alone. Are y'all with me? Do y'all have these identity struggles from time to time? And it's not like, you know, I'm perfectly there yet. I still sometimes rely too much on how I'm doing as a pastor and try to find my identity in that, how I'm doing as, as a husband, as a father. But that's, that's why I got to vocalize it from time to time. I got to say it out loud. My identity is found in Christ. Can we just say that together, all together this morning? My identity is found in Christ. Let's say it again. This time, say it like you mean it. My identity is found in Christ. Now, that's what this passage, that's the title of this message. That's what this passage that we're going to look at today is all about. And if, if I'm going to discharge my duty as a pastor this morning, you're going to feel the weight of that before you leave this morning, and you're going to be encouraged by that. If you're not, by the time we're done, then I haven't done my job very well. Because that's what 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17 is all about. It's all about putting your identity in that thing that means most, in that reality that is most significant eternally, in the present tense too. 
Your identity is found in Christ alone. And that begs the question as we get started this morning, don't let me assume that for everybody in this morning. Is your identity found in Christ above all else? Have you trusted Christ as your savior? He paid for your sin on the cross. His righteousness was put inside of you so that now God sees you as he sees his own son. Let's work through that this morning in 2 Thessalonians. By the way, this passage that we're going to look at is framed as a prayer. This is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. And by way of prayer, he's encouraging them. Maybe, maybe they needed encouragement. I know they did. You guys know they did because that was a tough place to be a Christian, Thessalonica in the first century. They, they certainly needed something because look at chapter 2. Verse 2 in your Bibles, Paul said, we looked at this last week, do not be quickly shaken in mind and do not be alarmed. Everybody see that in verse 2? That's not our passage for today. That was last week's passage, but I think that's still framing what we're looking at today. Why did Paul say that? Why did he say, do not be quickly shaken in mind, do not be alarmed? Well, because historically speaking, there were some folks going around Thessalonica, going around the churches, telling them, Jesus has already come. You missed it. He already came back and you missed it. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed. Don't let these, you know, frenzied groups of alarmists trigger something inside of you that would be fearful. And this is how Paul encourages them. And we looked at this last week and it's, it's a little bit humorous. He's like, Christ hadn't come yet because the Antichrist hasn't come yet and it's going to get a lot, lot worse before it gets better. So be encouraged, Thessalonica. And we're all like, oh, phew, thank you, Paul. I guess it's going to get worse first before it gets better, before Christ comes back. I'm encouraged. Things are going to get really, really bad. Paul says this is the essence of verses 1 through 12, which we saw last week. Things are going to get much worse than they are now. Things are going to get really, really bad and then they're going to get good. Then Christ is going to return. And yeah, maybe that's encouraging. I think it is. But Paul, thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He gives some even more encouraging words in the verses that follow. And, and like I said, I think that statement, do not be alarmed in verse 2, is still controlling everything else that's going on in this chapter. He's telling the, the Thessalonians, don't be alarmed, Christian, Because you are one, two, three, four, and five. I'll give you five things this morning. Don't be alarmed, Christian. Christians, if you want to pluralize it, because, I mean, that's certainly what Paul's doing here, speaking to the Thessalonians, and then by way of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's speaking to us this morning. So I'll speak to you individually, but let's speak to all of us as a whole as well. Do not be alarmed, Christian, because you are, number one, write this down, And believe it, you are beloved by the Lord. You are beloved, Christian. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, got the Holy Spirit inside of you, got your eternity secure with Christ. Like I said, Christ has taken your sin on the cross, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. You are loved by God. That is your identity. You are, here's the Greek, we've looked at it before, agapao. You can even hear the word agape in that verb. You are beloved, Paul says. Paul says, verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, 
beloved, agapao, beloved by the Lord. Yeah, so the Antichrist is coming. That's true. Don't you worry about that, Christian, because Jesus loves you, and he's not going to forget about you. He's not going to come back and be like, oh, I forgot about that so-and-so person who was a believer. He's not going to forget about you. Yeah, so things will get worse before they get better. Christ still has you. You are still loved. He's not going to forget about you. He's not going to miss you. Christ loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, even on this side of eternity. Listen, let me just give you some encouragement right now, Harvest Decatur. Let me speak to you as Paul would be speaking to the Thessalonians right now. You are loved by God. Even when Satan piles on lies on top of you, do you know that in the depth of the being, your being that God loves you, that he died for you, and that even now he's got good plans for you, and he's got a purpose for you, and he's got an eternity secure for you. If you know that, if you know that you know that you know that in the depth of your being, that changes everything about your life. That allows you to walk in freedom. That allows you to pursue holiness. Not because you're trying to earn God's favor. You're trying to do something to earn his love. You already have it. You already have it. And so your obedience and your pursuit of holiness flows from that, that confidence of God's love for you. Are you encouraged this morning? You know, last, last week we talked about the Antichrist. Two weeks ago we talked about hell. It's about time for a message like this. And as Paul transitioned in his letter, I'm trying to transition us this morning and see our status as beloved before God if we know him. You know, I was listening to Tim Keller preach on this a few weeks back, and he was talking about how, you know, God knows everything about us in ways that your spouse doesn't even know, your best friends don't even know. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows your worst sins, and yet he still loves you. And Keller was saying, you know, early on in his marriage, him and his wife, they tried to do that thing where they tell each other everything, every evil thought, every, everything that's going on in their heart, and every sin they have towards each other. And, it, and Keller said, if we keep doing that, we're not going to make it as a married couple. There's just too much in there. I just can't process it all. So let's just talk in generalities and, you know, confess. And, because it's so hard as a spouse to fully know even your own spouse and fully love them. But here's what Keller says. He says, God fully knows you, everything, every single thing about you. And he fully loves you. That is a marvel. Nobody else in this world can do that. Keller says this. You can read this on the screen. He said, there are people who think you're great because they don't know you. <laughs> There's nobody on the face of the earth who would know you to the bottom, who could love you to the skies. When someone likes you, but doesn't know you, that's not satisfying. When somebody knows you and doesn't like you, that's certainly not very satisfying. What we want ultimately is to be utterly known and utterly loved. And you can't get that from your spouse. Can I, can I give you some wisdom? Some of you newlyweds even out there, don't try to get that from your spouse. You'll make them crazy. Don't try to get that from your friends. Don't try to get that from your job. Don't try to get that from your coworkers. Don't try to get that from your pastor. You'll make him crazy. And I'm already halfway there. 
The only place that you can be fully known and fully loved is with God. He's the only one that can do that. That's why he's your Messiah. That's why he saves you. That's why, that's why you should lean on him for your deepest needs. And Paul thanks God in 2 Thessalonians that he knows, I mean, it's a good church. We've looked at this, but they're flawed and they're, they seem a little off too, believing these crazy things that are circulating in the church. But Paul's saying, even in spite of that, you are loved. And Paul, as he's thanking God here, he says, we ought, ought always to thank God for you in verse three. That's you, plural in Greek, talking about the, the entire church, you know. If Paul was a Texan, he would have said, y'all. So think of it that way. We always thank God, ought to thank God for y'all, brothers beloved by God. Why, Paul? Why are you giving thanks to God for the church? Because, let's follow the train of thought here. God chose y'all, that's plural again. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. There's a lot going on there. Let's look at this. Why is Paul giving thanks to God here? Well, because the saints in Thessalonica are beloved by God. He thanks God for that. But also because the saints in Thessalonica have been chosen. They've been chosen by God. Write that down as number two in your notes. Don't be alarmed, Christian, because you are beloved by the Lord and you also chosen Number two, chosen for salvation. Paul says you are chosen as the first fruits to be saved. I think, there's some debate about this. I think that means that the Thessalonian believers were the first of their city to be saved and many followed them. You know, the, the event, eventually the Roman Empire would be crawling with Christians. That's not the case in first century Thessalonica. But eventually the Roman Empire would outlaw persecution of Christians. So yeah, the Thessalonians are suffering. We've looked at that. And, and maybe in their fear, they're thinking, we're all going to die off. They're going to kill us all. You know, we're, we're the end of the end here. And so Paul, as a way to encourage them, says, no, listen, listen. Christianity is a proselytizing religion. The word is going to get out. The gospel is going to spread. More and more Christians are going to get saved. You're just the first fruits of this great harvest. And you're on the right side of the team. Is that encouraging? I think that would be encouraging for them. You are chosen, Paul says, as the first fruits to be saved. Now, I, let's talk about chosenness, this concept. I know that talk about chosenness is a source of consternation for some Christians. I know, I know that's true even here at Harvest Decatur because I've had conversations with some of you about this. And I've, even in my own soul, I've struggled with that, 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 our chosenness. And, you know, some of you struggle to understand the doctrine of election and how that works out, how God would choose us even before the foundation of the world, as Paul says elsewhere. But, but let me be honest with you, Paul does not present the understanding of election or our chosenness as, it's not presented as a source of consternation for us. Neither is it presented as a philosophical quandary for us to kind of figure out. Paul presents this election language, this chosenness language as, as a piece of encouragement. You are chosen by God so that we might be encouraged. 
so that we might praise God, so that we might give glory to God. And here's what John MacArthur would say. Here's another reason that Paul presents it. So we wouldn't be prideful, so that it would crush human pride, like somehow we did it in our own power. We figured it out on our own while other stupid people can't figure it out. No, we were chosen. God gets the glory for that. He gets the praise for our salvation. Our pride is crushed in that. God chose us so there's no place for, for hubris or haughtiness or cockiness or conceit inside of us. The perfect parallel for this is in the Old Testament with, with the Israelites. God even says in Deuteronomy that he didn't choose the Israelites because of their merit or because of their value compared to the other nations. Moses says it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord sent his love on you, set his love on you or chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Why is it then? Because the Lord loves you. That's why, because he chose to, because he wanted to. And speaking of our chosenness, Paul says elsewhere, this is Ephesians one, God chose you. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's a great verse, worthy of memorization, I think, if you struggle with this or you're trying to think through this. By the way, the, the reference to the beloved at the end of that verse, it, that's singular, whereas what we saw in 2 Thessalonians is plural. And that, that reference to the beloved singular, it's right to be capitalized. That's a reference to Christ, the beloved one. And it's that same word, agapao. So our beloved, here's why I'm pointing that out. Our belovedness, which is true, we talked about that already, it's not because you're, you're, you're loved by God, not because you're so darn cute and God just loves you so much. It's because you are in the beloved one. Are you all with me? It's because you are in Christ and God sees you as he sees his own son. Your belovedness is wrapped up in the fact that you belong to the beloved one. That's why I would say, whether I'm having a bad day or a good day, my identity is in Christ. God loves me regardless of my performance or what, how I'm feeling at the moment. That's the source of our belovedness. And that, again, begs the question, are you in Christ? Are you in the beloved? Are you now? If you are, then that trumps every bad thing that could ever happen in your life. Because that means you've been saved by grace and you have a future with him. Are you in Christ? Are you, as Romans 10, 10 says, are you one who has believed unto salvation? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. I know most of you in this room are because I've heard your testimony. And I just want to, more than anything, just encourage in, in, in those of you who believe that, that you are loved, that you are chosen, that you are a child of God. I loved singing that song today because it's a great reminder that we are sons and daughters of God. 
by faith because we're in Christ Jesus. You know, maybe sometimes, if you're like me, Satan, he will spread his lies all over you like, like jelly on a piece of bread and get you to think that, oh, maybe, I, maybe I'm not loved by God. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I've lost my salvation like I lost my car keys. Where'd they go? Where'd it go? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God saved you. God chose you. If you have faith in Christ Jesus as your Savior, you are loved by him. You are chosen. You are a child of God. Amen, church? Y'all believe that? I'm trying to get to the depth of your being this morning so that you know, that you know, that you know, no matter what happens, that that reality, that that identity is true and unshakable. There's nothing in your life that can be so terrible that you can't endure it if you know that I am a child of God. I belong to Jesus. I can go through anything knowing that. Let's keep going. This gets better. How could it possibly get better, Pastor Tony? It does. Look at verse 14. Paul says to this, he called you. That's to salvation, to sanctification in the spirit from verse 13. To this, salvation, sanctification, he called you. God called you into this through our gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody see that in verse 14? Your Bible say that? If I understand this correctly, Paul's telling us that we're going to obtain the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has. Am I reading that right? Sure. Is that a typo in my Bible? Is that surely Paul's misspeaking here? Surely he doesn't mean that we will be glorified like Jesus Christ is glorified? What's he talking about here? I'm going to write this down as number three, and then I'll, I'll do my best to explain it. But I want you to know this. As Christians, we are called to glory. We are called to glory. Theologians refer to three different stages or phases of salvation. And y'all have heard me say this before, and this might be a bit of a review for some of you. But... Uh, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Y'all heard this before? Those three categories are justification, sanctification, and then glorification. You have been justified. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been justified by his blood, saved, you, you know, then you are being saved. You are being sanctified right now. God is making you more and more like him, purging sin, putting to death the things of the flesh, and you will be glorified someday. Now, what, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about glorification. God chose you for salvation, verse 13. He's actually combining all three of these. God shows you for salvation, verse 13, through sanctification, verse 13, verse 14, all the way so that you may obtain glorification through our Lord Jesus. Jen Wilkin, uh, who's a, a great author, wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition, and she detailed these three realities for a Christian. I appreciated what she said, and she linked them to our battle with sin. Here's what she says. You can read this on the screen. She writes, Christian, be assured of your justification. It was one day you were freed fully from the penalty of sin. And then she says, be patient with your sanctification. 
It is. Each day you are being freed increasingly from the power of sin. And then she said, be eager for your glorification. It is to come. One day you will be freed finally from the presence of sin. And all three of those ideas are conveyed within the New Testament in this, the, the vocabulary of salvation. Now that last statement in verse 14, Paul's talking about obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about glorification. He's talking about glorification. And we have lots of clues in First and Second Thessalonians what, what that's going to look like. Christ will return in glory. The dead in Christ will rise first. Remember that from First Thessalonians. We will rise with new resurrection bodies, sometimes referred to as our glorified bodies. They won't be corrupted like our current bodies are corrupted. They'll be perfect and sinless and flawless. Christ will rule and reign in a perfect, glorious kingdom. Kingdom come, that's the title of this series. We will share in that glory. It doesn't mean, I want to I clarify this, it doesn't mean that we will, we will share in Christ's glory, but we won't share in his worship, Okay? Make that distinction. We will share in his glory. We will share even in his magnificence. And there will be an aspect of perfection that we will take part in. But we won't worship each other. We will worship Christ and we will do it forever. We will worship the Lord. That's what eternity will look like. We will worship him and we will be part of this one big, magnificent glorathon for 10,000 years and forevermore. That's what awaits us. You might say, Pastor Tony, I'm having a horrible week. You had a bad day of basketball. You should see what I went through this week. I'm having a horrible, I might lose my job, Pastor Tony. Okay, well, you know, we can help you through that as your church. That's what we're here for. But don't you ever forget your identity in Christ and your future with him. That trumps everything that happens in this life. That can help you get through anything. You might say, Pastor Tony, my health is declining precipitously. My body's falling apart. I feel horrible and it's only going to get worse. Okay, well, let me weep with you as you weep. That's the Bible says. But don't ever forget in that, in that suffering, that your identity is in Christ and there's nothing that's so terrible in this life that you can't endure it, knowing that your future is with him, with a new glorified body that's going to last forever. That's going to get you through it. Some of you might say, Pastor Tony, my kids are out of control. They're disrespectful. They're disobedient all the time. Okay, well, spank them. <laughs> they need it. Discipline them in love. But then in the midst of that, don't ever forget that your identity is in Christ and don't Help your kids to see that too, even as you discipline them. You might say, my kids are teenagers, Pastor Tony. I can't spank them anymore. Yeah, so you need to discipline them and you need, because you only got like, what, five years left, four years left, three years left with them, but the Holy Spirit has the rest of their, uh, rest of their life to instruct them and teach them. Help them to see their identity in Christ. Help them to discipline themselves and to seek the Lord on their own and to find their identity in Christ on their own. We're called to glory, Paul says. That's our future. We're in Christ Jesus. And it, it, you, know, you don't even have to be a teenager, really, to, to not understand this fully and how this trumps every other aspect in your life, everything else 
Every good thing, every bad thing. Our identity in Christ. Write this down as number four. Here's another thing that Paul says here. He says, don't be alarmed, Christian, because you are fortified by the truth. Let's keep going here. Verse 15. Paul says, so then, brothers, stand firm. And by the way, that's the first command that Paul gives in this passage. Stand firm. And there's a logical progression here. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You have glory, a, a, a future of glory with him. Because of that, stand firm. Everybody got the logical progression? You don't stand firm in, uh, in order to be loved by God. You don't earn your identity as a child of God. But because you are a child of God, because you are loved, now Paul gives the command. So then, stand firm. Everybody got that? There's a world of difference between trying to earn your salvation and standing firm and standing firm because you are saved. And that's what Paul is trying to get at right here. And this term here, Stand firm, it's, it's similar to that word steadfastness that we looked at. You know, hold your ground like a soldier. Stand firm, be strong. Hold fast, Paul says. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us. So then, brothers, stand firm. That's one command. Here's another command. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. I want to talk about this world this word hold to, it's the Greek word krateo. And it means, it means to grab or to grasp or even, even stronger than that, to seize. Seize those traditions. Actually, Matthew in his gospel, he used that word to describe King Herod Atipus when he arrested John the Baptist. Go arrest him and bring him into, into custody. He seized him, krateo. And Paul says here, we are chosen by God. And because we are beloved by him, we need to seize. We need to grasp. We need to take hold of the traditions that we were taught. We need to take hold of them. We need to own them. They need to inform us and become us. The first commandment is that we need to stand firm. The second is that we need to hold on to the traditions that we've been taught. Now, okay, let's talk about this. Tradition is a dangerous word. It is. And Jesus, you guys know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their traditions. And the reason he did that is because they had all of these silly little traditions that didn't really accord with the word of God. And Jesus was angry that he that they built upon the word of God with these human traditions, these man-made traditions. I know as Americans, we can be very negative about traditions. It sounds all too British to us to have traditions. But let me say this. If you've ever seen the fiddler on the roof, you know how powerful tradition can be. In the lives of people. Am I right? Tradition. 
Have y'all seen Fiddler on the Reef? You really need to, okay, if you haven't already. It, there's a powerful thing that takes hold of us with traditions. And Paul says here, hold on to the traditions, but, but watch, watch how he qualifies it, okay? We're not just talking about tradition for tradition's sake. Paul says, hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us. Everybody see that? Either by our spoken word, Paul came to Thessalonica more than one time, or by our letter, 1 Thessalonians, which he's already sent to them. The, if you have an NIV Bible, it doesn't translate this word traditions. It translates that Greek word teachings. And I, I think that's the right nuance here. Paul says, hold on to the traditions. Hold on to the teachings that you were taught. The teachings that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And what is the essence of those teachings? Not man-made traditions. What, what did Paul pass down to them? He passed down the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can be saved by faith, by grace, the good news that Jesus died for your sins and you can have your sins paid for. Also, I would add to that the word of God, starting with the book of Moses, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and now including all 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. Hold fast to those traditions. And some of you might say, I mean, it's, it's different now than it was for the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. You might say, how do we hold on to the spoken word of Paul? You know, we, we don't have Paul here, Pastor. He's not coming through that door this morning. Um, no, and that's why God recorded his scriptures. These are the traditions. These are the teachings that he wants us to hold to. Y'all with me? And hang on to it. And I would even say it stronger than that. We're actually in a better place than the Thessalonians are in terms of knowing exactly what Paul taught and the letters that he wrote. They're all here. Yeah, I mean, the Thessalonians had access to Paul, kind of, when he wasn't being, you know, thrown out of town by mob violence. They, they had opportunities to talk with him. But, but we have it all right here. We have all of Paul's letters, all of the scriptures inspired by God, and not just from Paul but also from Peter and also from Matthew and also from John. And also we have the book of Acts and we have the gospel of Luke. It's all here and we need to grasp it. I mean, you can, you can physically, just take your Bibles right now. You can grasp it. You can seize it. You can take hold of it. Is that what Paul means? You know, physically take hold of it? No, when he says, hold on to it, he's talking intellectually and affectionately. You take hold of it. You make it your own. This is mine. These are the instructions. I'm going to hold fast to this in light of the fact that I am a son of God and I'm following the word of God. Y'all with me? Let me just, by way of personal testimony, when I was a kid, I went to a good church, a church like Harvest Decatur. And I had good parents. They taught me the scriptures. They, my Sunday school teachers taught me the scriptures I was in Awanas. They taught me the scriptures. My youth pastor taught me the scriptures. I mean, it was there. It was there. But there came a time in my life. You teenagers, listen up for a second. It was there, and it was being taught to me. But there came a time in my life when I had to seize it for myself. It couldn't be my dad's thing. It couldn't be my mom's thing. It couldn't be my pastor's thing. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And I had to 
This is mine. These are my traditions. These are my teachings. God is my God. And I own this. This is who I am. And if you haven't gotten there yet, I'm not just talking to teenagers now. I could be talking to somebody who's 50 years old in this room. Maybe you just come to church because that's the thing to do. Maybe it's, you know, you just followed the crowds at chow time, so to speak, by coming to church. You need to seize it. You need to take hold of it. You need to own it. It needs to become you and inform you. That's what children of God do. That's what those beloved of God do. They receive, they stand firm, and they seize the traditions that we were taught, and we make them our own. Like, I'll give you an analogy. Like a paratrooper hanging on to a parachute just before they jump. That's what it should look like. You're seizing of these teachings. And then finally, one more thing. Write this down as number five. Don't be alarmed, Christian. You are beloved by the Lord. You are chosen for salvation. You are called to glory. You are fortified by the truth. And then finally, you are comforted by God. Let's finish this up together. Paul starts to pray fervently in verse 16 for the church. He prays. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word, every good work and word. Yeah, amen. I could pray that prayer for you right now, Harvest Decatur, word for word. Maybe I will at the end of the service. But let me unpack this a little bit, and then I'll pray, and then we can sing together. I want to say three things about these last two verses. I want to show you three things, if I could. I want to show you something that is theologically marvelous. I want to show you something that is practically marvelous, and then I want to show you something that is convictionally marvelous, okay? And then we'll be done. First of all, here's something that's theologically marvelous. In verse 16, Paul makes this reference to both the first and the second person of the Trinity. Everybody see that in your Bibles, verse 16? There's the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's God the Father. Okay, that's pretty typical. Pauline text, he often juxtaposes God the Father with God the Son together in a statement like this. Here's what's marvelous marvelous theologically and also grammatically. Paul references two persons, the Father and the Son in verse 16, but the main verbs he uses in that sentence, comfort and establish in verse 17, those are singular verbs. So you have two nouns using a singular verb. How, how can that be? How can he do that? I know this is a little bit lost on us in English because we, we don't conjugate our verbs very much. I would say, you know, may Sonia do such and such. May Tony and Sonia do such and such. We, but Greek is a highly inflected language, and they would change the verb if it was singular or plural. So you would expect plural here. God and Father, God the Father and Jesus, 
And yet there's a singular verb, not a plural verb, which is a grammatical error. Paul should be docked points for his bad grammar here. Y'all with me? Or should he? Maybe he's trying to make a point here. What is his point? Here's his point. Jesus Christ and God the Father are so intimately linked together that they only require one singular verb for the work that they're doing. Is that not theologically marvelous? I want y'all to think about that this week, okay? I want y'all to think about that when the Patriots are winning the Super Bowl this afternoon. And it's a boring game. You just think about that. Two nouns, one verb, one God, two, even three persons, what we call the Trinity. That's marvelous, theologically. Here's what's practically marvelous. Paul says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish your hearts in every good work and word. Here's what's marvelously practical in this passage. The verbs that Paul uses, loved and gave, are both past tense verbs. And so what he's saying is that they've already been given to us. We already have it. We already have eternal comfort. We already have good hope. We've already received grace. All of this has happened, not by anything that we've done, but by the grace of God. You can't earn it. You can't get it. You can't lose it. It's done. It's past tense. It's happened. And because of that, Paul says, actually, you know, he prays, actually, that we would be comforted and established in the here and now. Why are we comforted? Why are we established? Because we are comforted eternally because we are established eternally because we are loved in the past tense and we are established for the future tense let me simplify this with one statement the past and the future need to inform your present y'all with me you are saved you've been justified you're gonna be glorified So let that inform your life. Paul's praying even right now that that would help you in word and in work right now in the present tense. You have been justified. You will be glorified. And so God sanctify them now in the present tense. Here's how this works practically in your life. Pastor Tony, I'm having a rough week. Pastor Tony, my kids are driving me crazy. Pastor Tony, I'm I'm having some health issues. All right, take a deep breath. You are loved by God, past tense. God has, an, God has established an eternity for you, present tense. That's your hope. Future tense, sorry. So in the present, depend on him, rely on him, be strengthened by him. So you say, okay, my kids are driving me crazy. I'm loved by God, past tense. I have a future with Christ, future tense. And my kids right now, are sanctifying me, present tense. You got it? Let your past and your future in Christ inform your present. And then this, there's something convictionally marvelous about this passage too. Paul prays, let me just abbreviate what he's saying here. He's saying, may the Lord comfort and establish you in every good work and word. 
Here's how the NET version says it. I like this rendering better. He says, may the Lord encourage your heart and strengthen you in every good thing that you do and say. So here's what's convictionally marvelous about this statement. God cares about what you do and what you say. God wants you to do and say things that represent him well. Paul prays for that to be true in your life. Because people could say, you know what, I'm a child of God. I can do anything I want. I can send any way I want. And God doesn't care because I'm his child. You could say that maybe. Paul's not saying that. He's saying because you represent Christ, because you are saved, because you belong to him, you be strengthened. God, you strengthen them and comfort them in everything they do and everything that they say. Paul is praying right now here for your sanctification. Thanks, Paul. Paul is praying that you be like Christ in everything that you do and everything that you say. And he's praying that the Holy Spirit would convict you and change you. You know that thing in your life, just agree with me or disagree with me if you've ever felt this before. You ever had that thing in your life where the Holy Spirit is convicting you and there's that hurt in your soul like, man, I shouldn't be doing that. That ever happened to you before? Paul prayed for that to happen. Thanks, Paul. You know what that signals inside of you, that conviction? You're a child of God. You don't do those things. You're a child of God. You need to put to death that sin. You need to be strengthened in every word, in every deed to represent Christ in everything that you do. And the Holy Spirit will squeeze and we'll squeeze and we'll squeeze until that sin pops out of you. And you might say, I don't like that conviction. I wish it'd go away. No. No, that's a good thing. You know what that conviction tells you? This is why it's marvelous. It tells you that you belong to Jesus and that you represent him and your life needs to represent him. Paul prayed for it. I'm going to pray for it for you in just a second and for me too, that that conviction would come and come and change us and make us more like Jesus so that every word and every deed is good, so that every word and every deed represents Christ, is more like Christ till Christ calls us home. You know what that conviction is? That conviction of the Holy Spirit? This is what it should be. It's comfort. Like any good daddy, God's going to discipline you because he loves you. And he's going to convict you and force the sin out of you because he loves you. You all with me? Are you feeling that love right now? You feeling that conviction right now? It's a comfort. I'm going to pray. And I want to invite you to just bow your heads with me right now. And I'm going to make an assumption that I don't always make on Sunday mornings here. But I'm going to assume that you in this room believe 
Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you've acknowledged your sin before him, that you have put your faith in his death and his resurrection. And if that's you right now, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would confirm inside of your heart, I am a child of God. And God, I do pray for that. God, I pray that the lies of the enemy would be banished from hearts in this room. Holy Spirit, right now, I ask you to confirm to those who belong to you that they are beloved, that they are chosen, that they are destined for glory. And the guilt that they sometimes feel over their sin, the conviction. Lord, that comes not because you hate us, but because you love us. And like any good father, you're changing us. You're disciplining us. You're purging those things that are displeasing to you from our hearts. And Lord, we surrender to that work. God, I pray that our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace that he would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word Lord, we ask you to do that in Harvest Decatur. God, strengthen our work, our words, our deeds, our actions, our speech, and comfort our hearts too, Lord. Comfort them. Let us know in the depth of our being that we belong to you, that we are loved by you. That we are sons and daughters of God. Thank you, Jesus, for the salvation you purchased for us at the cross. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us to be saved, to be redeemed. We love you, Lord. Let's stand. Let's sing together.